Spirit. Lord, we ask you to illumine our minds and our hearts so that we can come to understand the mystery of the Incarnation. And thank you for that. We pray thee, our Father, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah, great question. Thank you. Any, does that answer what you're asking? Okay, so we're going to look now at the remedy. So Adam and Eve got us in. There's room up front, too. If you, if you, but, um, Adam and Eve got us in a um, predicament. Um, and so here's the, the predicament. That um, God made us for himself, for heaven, to enter into relationship with him. And there's a condition for that. And we call it sanctifying grace. And I'm going to explain that more in a few weeks. But what it means is sharing in God's life. And it, that's the condition for entering into heaven. And, but we saw one of the most important consequence of original sin is that we come into this world, conceived in our mother's womb, without it. Right? And so we're made, so we shouldn't think as a result of original sin that we're totally depraved or corrupted, human nature. Human nature is still good after the fall. Right? And we can even see this in the fact that God created both work and marriage before the fall. They continue after the fall, right? but we have to, there's a struggle involved now. So human nature isn't corrupted, but it's been stripped of gifts that were above human nature. That's what we said last time. And the most important gift that we lost was sharing in God's life. And that's represented in Genesis, the beginning of Genesis in the tree of life in the center of the garden, right? And as a result of their sin, they got expelled, and there were two cherubs placed there to prevent mankind from entering. We can take that in some way as um, um, a pictorial kind of representation, but the result is real for every human being. We come into this world lacking something that we need to get to heaven. All right, so that's the... the and if... Um, if nothing had been done about that, um, we would all, the entire human race, would be in a bad way. Right? But of course, God doesn't, he permits evil, we said, to bring about a greater good. And in this case, um, among the greater goods is the subject of our class today, the incarnation. God becoming man in the middle of human history. So, long time after Adam and Eve, I, I don't know when Adam and Eve lived, I don't think anybody does, um, but it was a long time ago. Right? In other words, um, more than it used to be the fashion to kind of think of it as 6,000 years ago, adding up the generations given in Scripture. But we don't need to think that Scripture gives us a complete genealogy of the human race. Right? That's not the intention of Scripture, to give us right, an historical chronology that would be exact. Um, and so we can think that Adam and Eve lived 100,000 years ago, whenever they were the first um, human beings with a rational soul whenever that was, okay? Um, and Jesus Christ is the remedy for them 
and for every other human being. All right, so here's the divine plan. God, um, knowing that, right, that um, even before creation, knowing that Adam and Eve would in fact sin, he prepared a better plan, and we could say infinitely better, that in the fullness of time, um, God would become man. Um, my screen is frozen here. Um, yeah, God would become man, um, born of a woman, born of an, a Jewish woman. Um, so the catechism says this, after the first sin, the world was inundated with sin, but God did not abandon man to the power of death. Rather, he foretold in a mysterious way that evil would be conquered and that man would be lifted up from his fall. So God never left mankind without hope of redemption. Um, and we just get a glimpse of this in the line from Genesis 3.15. It's really interesting. So the, basically the setting is this. Adam and Eve had committed their sin. They're hiding um, instead of walking with him in the cool of the day in the garden, right? And that's a sign of their having lost the divine life, lost friendship with God. That's the principal loss of original sin, losing that friendship with God. All right. um, after, after that, right, they, they hide, God comes to them, and he gives to the three kind of protagonists. So who are the three? So we think of two, Adam and Eve, but there's a third, and that's the serpent who tempted them. And each one gets a penalty. Did I talk about this last time? Can't remember. Okay, and so um, Eve's penalty is labor pains. Adam's penalty is? work with the sweat of the brow, but also death. That, of course, is for woman as well as for man. And, um, and then the serpent also gets a penalty, and it's very curious. Um, so God says to the serpent is representing Satan, right? He's the one um, tempting them in the garden. And God says to him, so this is his penalty. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. A strange line. So who is, first of all, who's the woman? It doesn't seem that it's Eve because she's his ally, Satan, right? She believed, Eve believed him. Eve wasn't in enmity with the serpent. So it doesn't seem to be about Eve, um, but it's about some other woman whose offspring will crush Satan's head. All right, who's that other woman, right? Jesus has a mother, right? And that mother is Mary. So it seems that the, this is a, the first prophecy of um, the Savior who will crush Satan's head and a mother, a woman, who will it's, bring him into the world, right? And that woman is said to be in enmity with Satan. And we're going to talk about this later in about a month from now. And this is our first indication that Mary was preserved free from sin because she was in enmity with Satan, it seems, in a total way. Um, and that's not true of us. But there's also something interesting there. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and Satan's seed being other demons, right, fallen angels. Um, and he, that is, the woman's offspring, I would say Jesus, he will bruise your head or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel or crush his heel. What's that referring to? 
Uh huh, Lord. The, the, uh, when he became incarnate uh -huh. and his suffering death. Ah, fantastic. This is it. So it's a metaphor. Um, the serpent crushing um, the Savior's heel would be the fact that something in Jesus um, is harmed or damaged or crushed in the process of crushing Satan's head. Right? And so both of them happen on this cross. On this cross, by dying, Jesus crushes the power of Satan, destroys death and its power. But at the same time, Satan um, inflicts something on Jesus, and his death and his passion. All right, so it seems this is the first prophecy. Now, you might say, how could, um, if someone didn't already believe in, in Christianity, they wouldn't see, that's true. Jews don't see what I just said there, or what we just said. Um, but that's the way it is for all prophecies. Prophecies make sense after the event, right? Then you can, ah, that's what that meant, um, principally. So this is our first prophecy, and so we can see that um, mankind wasn't left without hope after the original sin, all right? Um, but, um, and it's also reasonable to think some memory of this original promise is in the different cultures of the world because most, uh, just about every religious culture that I've read about has some hope in a redeemer who will come. Okay. Yeah, and that's... Um, in the Easter Vigil, when you enter the church, we'll say, oh, happy fault, the deacon chances, very beautiful, oh, happy fault that gained for us so great a redeemer. So the divine plan is that in the fullness of time this would happen, but not right away. Right? So you might ask, well, Adam and Eve sinned, and 100,000 years pass before a savior is sent. I'm going to explain this more in a few weeks. It's not... Um, it's not as if the people who lived before Christ couldn't receive any benefit from his coming. They could. And it was the forgiveness of sins. So depictions, um, I think we've got one here in the Basilica, of Adam and Eve who are among the saints. Um, and so we should think that they got redeemed and their sin was forgiven, they repented, and they are in heaven today. Um, along with Abel the just and, and many, many other people who lived before Abraham, right? And that's because um, God is out of time, and he can take an event that happens in time, and we're going to talk about this in two weeks from now. Sorry, I keep on saying that, but he can't do everything all at once. In a couple of weeks, we'll talk about what Christ did on the cross. And he atoned, he redeemed mankind from sin by offering something more positive then sin is negative. And as a result of that act, he won grace back for mankind. All right, so we said the consequence of original sin is we come into this world without grace, without divine life. Jesus won it back for us on Calvary. And this gets applied to people both who lived before his coming and us who live after his coming, but in different ways, right? And for us, it principally happens through the church and her sacraments. But it could also happen through desire for it for people who don't know about it, right? People who've lived tragically and outside the missionary reach of the church, right? There are lots of people, in fact, probably billions of human beings today, in Asia especially, and some in Africa, that have never heard the gospel, Muslim countries, right? And so um, they too can find salvation through Christ. 
but it's tragic that they don't know that. Anyway, we'll talk more about that later on. All right, so God's plan from the beginning was to... Something's happening to my... Um, was to promise salvation. One of my favorite paintings is this um, painting by Fra Angelico. So he's a um, patron, um, he's a blessed um, patron of artists. He was a monk, a, ben, a um, Dominican monk. And um, this is his annunciation scene um, where the angel comes to Mary to tell her that she's going to conceive um, the Messiah and the Son of God. And you can see back over here, he's put a garden scene. And who, anybody? Who are they? Adam and Eve. Right. So th even though, yes, these two events are separated in time by, I don't know, 100,000 years, and the artists put them together because this is the answer to that. Right. What was lost through Adam and Eve's sin is regained through Mary's faith and Jesus' passion. All right, so this is the good news for mankind, that God hasn't simply left us in the tragedy of original sin or left us to ourselves, right? But in, the, in his plan, he's entered human history. and he, So if God becomes man, he's got to become man at some particular time, right? In other words, and he's got to become man at some particular place in human history. And so he's prepared for this. And I'll say more about that in a minute. But um, so we call it the good news that God has entered human history and redeemed us. And that's the meaning of the Greek word gospel. So when we read in the Bible, the four gospels, right, literally it means the good news um, of God becoming man um, to redeem us. Yeah, so this is the center, we could say, of... So all of history we can think of as salvation history. God has never left us simply abandoned. And so he's done things in history preparing for this event. But the center, the central event, is when he um, becomes, when he's conceived in Mary's womb and becomes a fetus in Mary's womb, right? And then is born in Bethlehem. So that's the center of human history, right? And there's a great line from... Galatians chapter 4, where St. Paul says, in the fullness of time, he sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So here's the idea, that um, God sent his son, so we talked about that a couple, was that two weeks ago? when we looked at the Trinity, that God from all eternity has this mystery of a communion of persons in his inner life, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Of the three, it's not the Father nor the Spirit who is sent, but the Son. The Father sends the Son into the world such that the Son takes on flesh and becomes a human being, a man, born of a mother, right? In Israel, and that's why St. Paul says born under the law. That would mean born under the Jewish law, the Torah, um, as part, born under the Old Covenant. And we'll get to that in just a second. To redeem first, this might be surprising, Paul says to redeem those under the law. Who are those under the law? 
Jews. So St. Paul is actually saying he became man first to redeem Jews and then, by extension, all nations, and that would be Gentiles, all, all mankind. What did I do here? Sorry about that. Okay, what's it? So the name Jesus, so just very briefly the terminology. The name Jesus means God saves, and it was a common Jewish name at the time. All right, so Mary was instructed by the angel and, and St. Joseph likewise to name him Jesus, which means God saves. And it would actually be the Hebrew name Joshua. It's the same name as Joshua, but shortened. And in, um, it would actually be, say, Yeshua is how um, Jews would say that name in Aramaic. Um, and um, Joshua in some way prefigures Jesus because Joshua brought the chosen people into the Holy Land, kind of prefiguring how Jesus brings us um, into the church and into heaven. We um, also call him the Messiah, and I'll explain that in a minute, but um, it literally means anointed one um, in Hebrew. And anointed one um, would refer um, in Hebrew to kings, priests, and prophets. They were anointed um, with olive oil. So like what happens, what will happen to you and the Easter vigil, those of you who are being confirmed, you'll get olive oil traced on your forehead by the um, archbishop. And um, that's the sacrament of confirmation. In ancient Israel, that happened only, not to everyone, but to a very small number of people. The king, King David, um, the high priest, and a prophet like Elijah. And it's, Jesus is called the anointed one in a unique way. Not simply another king, another prophet, another priest, but the king, the prophet, the priest. We could put a capital K or P. All right, so that's the meaning of the term Messiah. Um, but there was a whole series of prophecies um, to prepare for his coming that I don't have here in my um, PowerPoint, but let me just say something about. Questions up to, up to there? All right, so I said that um, if God enters in... Oh, yeah, yeah. Jasmine, thanks. That's right. Joshua would be Yehoshua, and the shortened form in Aramaic is Yeshua. And that's how um, he would have been called by Mary and Joseph, Yeshua. It sounds like you yeah. said Jesus' name is Josh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, so it was not an uncommon name in his time. In fact, it was like among the most common names. Okay. Um, so... It, we said that um, if God is coming into human history, it makes sense that he's going to prepare for this. Um, just as we prepare, say, for a wedding, um, I teach seminarians, they're preparing for ordination. They start 
for, being formed for eight years in advance. Um, and so um, it makes sense that God wants to enter history. He's going to prepare even more. Right? And so he prepared for 2,000 years in approximate way. Right? So ever since the beginning, it's in the divine plan. But he starts preparing by calling Abraham out of Mesopotamia. So we could say the whole of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament is a preparation for the incarnation. Because if God is going to become man, he's got to become man somewhere at some time. And so he chose to form the people in whom he would become man. Right? And he formed that people by calling Abraham and bringing him into a covenant um, with himself. Right? And he gave Abraham a double promise that Abraham would um, be the father of a great nation, as great as the sands of the sea and the, the, um, the stars of the sky. Um, but the second promise was that all nations would be blessed in his offspring. And therefore, it, wasn't, it was a blessing about the Jewish people, but even more so, all nations would be blessed. And so we think that offspring is the Messiah, the Messiah in whom all nations would be blessed. Uh-huh. Why was Abraham? Why? Yeah, there's a um, great question. So when God calls us to something, and we um, can't usually answer the question, why did he call me for this? And that's okay, right? And the reason is, um, he, um, if it, it can't, so here's what it can't be. God called Abraham because Abraham was so great, or Abraham was so faithful, because it's got to be the other around. Um, God made Abraham faithful so that he could call him. And it's the same thing for us in each of our lives. Each one of us is also called to all kinds of things, right? Called, if you're, we're in this class, to be a member of his church. And already that, and to be a son or daughter of God. All right, what did we do to merit that? The answer's got to be nothing, right? You can't. And so that's the answer about Abraham. He couldn't merit being called. And God later said to Moses, um, why did we, I call the Jewish people? Not because you were the greatest, the strongest, the most powerful, had the best army, had the best, I don't know, philosophy or music or, or art or something like that, but because you were the smallest, the weakest, the most insignificant, um, so that um, everyone could see that it was my grace. Right? And so that's what we should think if, um, when we get called to something, right? that we are called because we're the weakest, and that shows off God's and mercy, okay? Yeah, and it's the same thing with Mary, right? She couldn't merit being the mother of God. It's the other way around. God's grace had to form her for that, right? And that's why we think that she was formed from the beginning, and we'll talk about that later. That's what we understand by the immaculate conception, right? That she got a special grace to help her. Just as we should think all of Israel, Abraham especially, but his offspring got special graces to be formed as the people in whom God would become man. Right? And so he calls Abraham about 2000 BC. Right? That's 2000 years before the incarnation. Precisely to prepare a people in whom he would become man and prepare a culture so that when God became man, it wouldn't be just in any culture, but one specially formed by his covenant with them, by his gifts to them. And so there are many gifts, right? Among the gifts are, above all, the promises that he would 
um, come to redeem them, right? That he would come um, and be a, a son of Abraham. And so there's a whole kind of genealogy. So the promise first went to Abraham. Abraham has two sons, right? Ishmael and Isaac. Which one gets the promise? Isaac, not Ishmael, because Isaac is the son of his wife, Sarah, whereas Ishmael was the son of a handmaiden. And um, so it's Isaac, not Ishmael. And again, is it because it, uh, Isaac is better than Ishmael? No, right? It's gratuitous. All right, Isaac's got two sons, Jacob and Esau. Which one gets the blessing? Jacob, Jacob not Esau. Why? They're twins. It's not because, I don't know, um, Esau was actually born first. Um, Esau sold him. Yes, Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for a plate of lentils. Um, but um, we could see there's a divine plan behind this, and it's not just that Jacob was better than Esau. They both had faults. Um, that's kind of an understatement. Um, but um, and that's a beautiful thing about reading the Old Testament is that all of the saints of the Old Testament, we can call them saints, have human faults. And then, again, as we do, right? And that's encouraging. And family feuds and so forth. Um, and then um, Esau has, I'm sorry, Jacob has how many sons? Anybody know? Twelve sons. Those are the twelve tribes of Israel, right? That's the origin of the twelve tribes. All right, not all of them can be the tribe in whom the Messiah is going to come. So which one is it? Anybody know? Joseph. Not Joseph, right? You would think it would be Joseph. Of the twelve sons, one was a saint, Joseph, the dreamer, right, who saves his, his family. He's not the one. We don't know why. Does anybody know which of the? Benjamin, was not Benjamin either. Another second favorite son from his favorite wife. Not Reuben either. Not Reuben either, the firstborn. Right? It's the fourthborn, Judah. Why? We don't know. Okay? And we don't need to know because it's gratuitous. Right? It's God's free blessing. Um, and so Judah became the head of the tribe that's now in the... Um, um, so that's why we call Jews by that name Jews from the tribe of Judah, because the 10 northern tribes got lost, and you have only Judah and Benjamin remaining after the, um, they were conquered by the Assyrians, about 700-something BC. Um, in any case, so um, Judah, um, but Judah um, was a gigantic, it was the largest tribe of Israel, so there has to be someone in Judah that the Messiah is going to descend from. Who's that? Anybody know? He becomes a king, King David, right? So God promises to David that his offspring would, be, um, would rule forever over the, the tribes of Jacob, right? So that's a beautiful prophecy. So I, I should have put it into the notes here. But it's from um, 2 Samuel 7.14, I think, if I'm not missing that up. And it's um, an interesting, um, David has just conquered Jerusalem, Reminds us of what's happening these days. He's conquered Jerusalem, and he and builds his capital there, and he builds for himself a palace. And at this time, the Lord was present in the midst of his people in the Ark of the Covenant, which was a kind of a movable place of worship. And it was captured by the Philistines. David took it back. It was, he brought it to Jerusalem, and he says to his prophet Nathan, it's not right that I live in a palace um, a cedar palace, and the Lord lives in a tent, the tent of meeting. I will build a house for him. And the prophet Nathan says, great. He goes home, goes to sleep, and the Lord reveals him, no. And so the next day he tells David, no, you won't build a house for me. 
I'm going to build a house for you, but a different kind of house. House can also mean dynasty. And so God promised to David that he would, his offspring would um, have an everlasting kingship and that one of his sons, um, among his offspring, there would be one who would be king forever. That's a surprising prophecy, right? Who can be king forever? Not Solomon. So, and that he would build a temple to the Lord. There you would think Solomon. And that I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. So those are basically the three promises. That he will be a son of God. That he will rule forever and be king forever. And that he would build the temple. All right. David had a son named Solomon who, in fact, ruled after him, brought Israel to its largest extension, and built the temple in Jerusalem. But he died, and he's not still king. So clearly the prophecy wasn't about him, but about somebody else coming afterwards, right? Another son of David. So basically that's where the prophecy got left. And this is where Jewish ideas of the Messiah mostly are rooted in that promise, right? That David would have a a son down the line, a great-great-great-great-great-grandson who would be king forever, who would be son of God, and who would build a true temple to the Lord. And so we should understand that temple to be his body. So God gave promises and prophecies to Israel, and so there are lots of them. That's one. There are about 100 prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of the coming Messiah. And, and the most of them speak of him as king, like we just said. Some of them speak of him as a new Moses. He will be a new prophet who will fully reveal God to Israel. And others speak of him as a high priest who would um, offer a perfect sacrifice to redeem us from sin. So basically those are the three aspects of the Messiah. King forever, perfect high priest who will redeem us from sin, and um, a perfect prophet who will fully reveal God to us, right? And Jesus accomplished those and more, right? And part of that first prophecy was that he will be a son of God in a unique way. Um, and so that's something that the Jews didn't fully um, understand or incorporate, that the promised Messiah wouldn't simply be a mere human being, but would be God-made man. And so the reality, in some way, went way beyond the expectations. The expectations are, were great. So Jews still today are still expecting the coming Messiah. And in fact, they pray for him um, always, right, in, in synagogue services, especially at the Passover. And they leave a, a place empty at a Jewish Passover Seder um, for Elijah. And Elijah is the precursor of the Messiah. Right? So there's still, Jews still hope for a coming Messiah, but um, the Messiah already came. So, uh, it's interesting you say that because I just had a, <clears throat> a thought. <clears throat> so, the significance of the transfiguration you know, his glory was seen. He was standing next to Elijah and Moses. That's right. So, maybe in Jewish, back then, in Jewish culture, that was real significant. Sure, uh, right, because it's showing... Fantastic. It's putting him in continuity with the great figures of Judaism, the two great prophets, Moses and Elijah. Um, and we could say two parts of the Bible, the books of Moses and the prophetic books. 
and showing Jesus at the center and that they were prefiguring. And it's interesting, they were conversing with him in the account. We'll, we'll look at this next, in two weeks, we'll look at the life of Jesus and we'll look at the transfiguration. But yeah, so it's precisely pointing out that continuity. In other words, we, Jesus is, it's really important that he was a Jew because he was promised to the Jewish people and um, his mother was um, a Jew, Mary, and he was of the line of King David. The line of King David was no longer grand and glorious and wealthy at that time. And the probable reason is that um, everyone, um, all the leaders of Israel were worried about the possibility of a son of David claiming the crown. And so sons of David um, were persecuted and um, lived in poverty like Joseph. Okay, um, so Jesus um, was foretold in the Old Testament, but in some way exceeds the expectations of the Jewish people. So that's, that's why he wasn't immediately recognized by all, because the prophecies are somewhat ambiguous. They were, um, the prophecies, yes, he would be um, um, someone who would um, conquer sin and iniquity, someone who would rule forever, someone who would be um, a high priest according to the line of Melchizedek, someone who would, um, um, the suffering servant, right, who would be a ransom for sin. And it would be very hard to understand. If you were just reading the Old Testament and you didn't know anything about Jesus, what would you think? How can these different prophecies come together in one person? And so very often Jews understand the Messiah as more than one person because it seems impossible for one person to accomplish it all. And then there's actually more to it. Among the prophecies is that um, he will be son of God. We just saw it. And there's another, Psalm number two, in which the, um, God says to the Messiah, you are my son, right? This day I have begotten you. Um, and so if you think about it, to be God's son um, what does that mean? Um, we are sons and daughters of God in a different sense than Jesus. Let me say something about that. We are sons and daughters of God by adoption at baptism because we come to share in the divine life. Jesus isn't simply a son or an adopted son. He's the son. And that's how he spoke about himself when he started to speak preach in Israel after he was baptized by John the Baptist. And he started speaking of himself as the son, and he would speak to God as my father. And he taught us to say our father, but Jesus never said our father. He said my father to indicate that his relationship with the father is different than ours. His is unique. He's the natural son, and we're adopted sons and daughters. What do I mean by natural son? From all eternity, he was the invisible divine son. And that invisible divine son took on flesh and became a human being at the incarnation. All right, so that. And so um, this is the most important event of human history. And therefore, the, it's the central task of the church is to evangelize Right? And to evangelize literally means to spread the gospel, that is the good news, about the incarnation. And therefore, to evangelize means to speak about Jesus to mankind. Right? And it's the most beautiful thing. And um, all of us are called to do that right? each in our, 
in our um, place, right? In our um, vocation. Okay. Item Messiah. So Jesus is the Son of God in a unique and perfect way. And he's called the beloved Son. So this is at his baptism. So he's 30. I mean, we'll go into this in two weeks from now. But at his baptism, um, the, uh, the voice of the Father was heard, you are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Like that psalm from the Old Testament. Right? And so that shows us Jesus' identity. He's the Son who knows the Father. And so that's why he's also called the only begotten son. All right, we're also sons and daughters, but he's the only begotten in the sense the only natural son. Right? We're adopted sons. And he's the second person of the Trinity. We, might, we could even ask this question, why am the second person of the Trinity? And it makes sense. It's because the son's task, Jesus' task, is to make us share in his sonship. So it makes sense that it's the son of God who becomes man to make us into adopted sons and daughters. Right? That's, and that's the fruit of Jesus' redemption, making us into his sons and adopted sons and daughters. Okay, scripture also speaks of Jesus as the Lord. So let's say something about that. The Lord... In, um, so in letter to the Philippians, there's a magnificent passage. Let me read it. Where um, Saint, so Saint Paul's the author of the letter to the Philippians, and he's he's speaking about giving. Um, um, he's telling Christians to think that everyone else is better than ourselves. In other words, to never look down on somebody else but to always think of everyone else as better than ourselves, right? and they are, and all of you are in some regard, maybe not in every regard, um, and he gives the example of Jesus. Jesus who, although he was in the form of God, emptied himself and became, took on the form of a slave or servant, and that is took on human flesh, and became obedient, obedient unto death. Um, Death, not just any kind of death, but death on a cross, right? This was the worst kind of death that could possibly be imagined. So obedient unto death, death on a cross. Because of this, God greatly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that's a beautiful profession of faith in Jesus' divinity. Right, so this is the key point for this class, is that Jesus is true man. Right? He's a human being, as we are, with every human faculty that we have, a human will, a human heart, a human reason. But he's also true God. Right? And that's, I think it's fair to say, the hardest thing to believe. The Trinity that we did two weeks ago was also hard to believe, but perhaps this is even harder because it's a greater contrast. Um, so what we're saying is the God who created right, the universe, the God who sustains us all in being, became 
a human being. And that means that he became a fetus, utterly dependent on his mother's body. He became a human being who had to be taught how to speak Hebrew. He became a man who was crucified and died, being God. Right? And so that is um, the greatest, it's an infinite contrast between divine power and the human weakness that he took on. He didn't stop being God when he was nailed to the cross, right? He still was God. He didn't stop being God when he was a fetus in Mary's womb, right? He was both at the same time. All right, questions on that? And so that's why we say he received the name that's above every other name. What name is that? The divine name, God. Question? Okay. Okay. With, uh, a, a scripture that mm -hmm. I found comforting in there. Do you want to say what it is? Hebrew four, fourteen through sixteen. Do you, do you want to read? I read. And it reads: Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sinning. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Beautiful, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so that's from the letter to the Hebrews, in which he speaks, we've got a high priest. So that was among the prophecies about the Messiah, right? that he would be a high priest, but not the same as Israel had, along the line of Aaron, but one who could actually redeem us from sin, one who could pass through the veil of this creation, and yet one who, being God, nevertheless suffered temptation and death so that he could sympathize, right, with what um, we undergo. Thank you. All right, so he's the Lord of the world and of history, the only one to whom we must completely submit our personal freedom, right? We don't do that. So yes, we're to honor our parents, but um, we can't totally give our freedom to any mere human being, whether it's our parents, our spouse, our children, a dictator, whoever it may be. But God, we can, because he's the one who made us and infinitely loves us. And so for Jesus, yes. And so that means that the power, the honor, and the glory that are due to God the Father are equally due to God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and therefore equally due to God the Son made man. Right? So Jesus, man, is also God, and therefore all the glory and honor is due to him um, as to the Father. All right, question on that? So let's look at the question, why? Why did the Son of God become man? And so the catechism here has this beautiful kind of summary. So this can be answered in lots of different ways. Thomas Aquinas, the great theologian, gives 10 reasons why God became man. Um, but um, the catechism gives above all four. And so I think it's a beautiful summary. So why? He did so to reconcile us with God. That is another way of saying to redeem us from sin and to win the forgiveness of sins so as to bring us back into union with God. Here, I've got another slide on it. So the, um, the other, the big catechism said, the word became flesh for us in order to save us by reconciling us with God. 
right, who loved us and sent his son to be the expiation for our sins. All right, what does expiation mean? It means to offer a sacrifice that would win the forgiveness of sins. And so in Israel, they offered many sacrifices, right? Thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs and bulls and other animals. Um, and they didn't win the forgiveness of sins, right? Because they couldn't. And that's also from the letter to the Hebrews. How could the blood of bulls and goats, right, take away sin? But um, so a perfect sacrifice would be one that's more pleasing than sin is displeasing. And that's what happened on Calvary. And we'll, we'll come back to that in a couple of weeks. All right, but that would be, um, that's the first reason that um, the catechism gives here. The Father sent his Son as the Savior of the world. He was revealed to take away sins. All right? But that's not the only reason. Um, he also became flesh, and maybe even more importantly in some way, so that we might know how we are loved by him. Right? So the word became flesh so that we might know God's love in a unique way. And here's, it's really simple. It's if um, spousal love, um, which is, right, so there's all different kinds of love in human affairs. There's, um, I love ice cream, there's um, friendship love, but the, the strongest model of love is spousal love that's a total self-gift that I can no longer take back, right? And so that's the, the, the model for understanding God's love. And so spouses share life together, right? And they live together. And so God wanted to take on our flesh to be our bridegroom. And that meant he wanted to dwell in the midst of mankind in a way proper to human beings, taking on flesh to be among those who have flesh. Right? It wouldn't be... Um, fitting if our bridegroom um, is just simply God and not man and doesn't have flesh, isn't in a place, and he wants to marry mankind and we're in a place with bodies. So he took on a body from us. In other words, he took on what is ours to give us a share of what is his. We'll see that in a minute, all right? And so this shows his love more than anything else he could do, right? And even though Israel doesn't believe this, right? Israel, nevertheless, um, has a very strong faith in God's love because of what God did for Israel. And basically, that's how we, how do we know that people love us? Um, because we see the effects of that love, right? How do we know our parents love us? Because they've, you know, given us life and taken care of us and fed us for 20 years or whatever. And so um, God shows that he loves us more than anything else by this, by becoming a human being and entering into human history. And so this means that we believing in Christianity, have a reason for loving God back greater than anybody else. They may do it better than we do, but we have a better reason for doing it. Does that make sense to everyone? In other words, we know more about how we've been loved. Right? And it's, yes, he became man, but there's even more to it, right? He became man and died for us. Again, showing us that full extent. Right? And so this is um, an invitation to love him back. And yeah, so the catechism cites um, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. All right, so to reveal his love. 
And then the third reason is to be a model of holiness. So in the Old Testament, yes, God revealed to Israel how we should live, and that's giving them the Torah and the commandments. And we have those too. But it's one thing when you just get a rule book of how you should live, and it's another thing when you get a perfect living example. right? And so in human life, that perfect living example is so much more important. Um, and um, so Jesus became man also for this, to be our model of holiness. Right? And that was part of, in that reading that you... Uh, read from uh, Hebrews. And Jesus said, take my yoke upon me and learn from me, right? Because I'm meek and humble of heart. And then I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So Jesus, all the prophets in the Old Testament and the saints of the Old Testament are models, but they're, none of them are absolutely perfect models, right? So think of one of my favorites is King David, right? He's a great model, at least up until the time when he commits adultery and murder. <laughs> And then he's a great model of repentance after that. But, but um, Jesus can be a model in a different way, right? Without any sin at all. And doing the hardest possible thing out of love for us. All right? So Jesus um, becomes man to be our model. And then the last one, which we tend to overlook, but Eastern Christians are more aware of, I think. And that's the idea that God became man to make us shares of his divine life. We said it from the beginning. We said that was the problem from, with original sin is that we lost that share in the divine life. So it makes sense that God would be, want to become man to make us shares of his divine life. And we call it, um, in the West, we tend to call it sanctification. And Eastern Catholics call it divinization or theosis. That's just the Greek word for divinization. They mean the same thing, right? There's, there's no difference. And so um, we're, that's what baptism does for us. Baptism makes us share in the divine nature, and it's meant to grow every day of our life. So it's not an, a black-white like an on-off switch. Um, it's something that's meant to grow like a life in us, sharing in the divine life. And the way that Scripture speaks about it, it's from the second letter of Peter, chapter 1, verse 4, is to make us sharers, that's partakers, simply means to sh share in the divine nature. All right, I can say that phrase, but I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, because it seems like a contradiction. How can a human being share in God's nature? Um, and it's something that happens invisibly. We can't see it. It's not as if after we're baptized, I don't know, we get a new head or something. And we look just the same, right? The baptized baby doesn't look any different at all than the unbaptized baby. But we believe something different has happened. And in fact, the baby has changed and now becomes one who shares in the divine nature and is meant to grow in that throughout life. All right? Um, yeah, so this is why the word became man. So here's the divine plan. The son of God becomes a son of man so that we, the sons and daughters of men, might be made into sons and daughters of God. So that's what um, theologians call the divine interchange, or at least that's what I like to call it in my classes at the seminary, divine interchange. That God um, takes on what is ours, human nature, um, infancy, uh, play, um, speaking a human language, um, human family, um, suffering, temptation, and death to give us a share of what is his, divine life, eternal life, intimacy with the Father, life without end. 
Right? That's the, and it's, it's a, like a marriage, right? It is a marriage. That's what a covenant is. He marries mankind by taking on flesh so as to make us into his bride. Again, women have an, I'm going to come back to this when we look at the church. Women have an advantage in thinking about themselves as brides of God, right? But it's true of um, men and women, um, all mankind. Okay. All right, any questions on why God became man? All right, to die for us? To um, show his love, maybe we should start with that, to show his love, to... um, to die for us and reconcile us with the Father and win the forgiveness of sins, to um, be our perfect model of holiness, and to make us shares of his divine nature. All right, so those are the reasons. And we'll see later on that the Eucharist continues this. In the Eucharist, all right, so I went to Mass this morning, what did I do? I got to share in offering the sacrifice of God the Son that reconciles us to the Father, and I got to receive Jesus, um, who is right, um, God made man, precisely who's come to give us a share of his divine life. You, right, for now, you have to wait on that until the Easter vigil, right? Those of you who are not yet um, entered into the church, but um, so those of you who are just here for confirmation can. But those who are waiting to enter the church at the Easter vigil, um, long for it. Right? Use this time to desire that um, way. So you, the Eucharist is the principal way by which he gives a share of his divinity um, by feeding us with his flesh and blood. Anyway, we'll talk about that later on. Okay, yeah, divine interchange. All right, the word, so we use this fancy word incarnation. It comes from the Latin, and it literally means enfleshment, um, coming into Carne in Latin is flesh. So incarnation means taking on flesh. Or be, and it's from the key um, phrase is John 1.14. Um, the word was made flesh um, and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Right? The word was made flesh. By flesh, we don't just mean flesh. What we really mean is he was made human. And it's a, it's a kind of metaphor, um, taking flesh for the whole of human nature. All right. Questions on that? So here's the key um, dogma. Dogma just means a teaching of faith that we have to hold in faith. And that is that Jesus is true God and true man in one person. All right. So there's three things. So basically, we have to hold that Jesus is true God, that he's true man, and that he's not two, but one person. And so there are different ways that you can um, lose and deny the Catholic faith. Right? One way would be to deny he's true God. Another way would be to deny he's truly man. And a third way would be to deny that he's truly one person. And different groups of Heretics. So a heresy would be a, um, a group that denies um, a, a, a central teaching of the Christian faith. So um, the first heresy was actually, of a, which do you think would be the first heresy? Denying? Denying the Son of God. Denying his divinity, right, would be the kind of the obvious thing. But it wasn't actually that. It was denying his 
true humanity. Odd. And th these were the, called the Gnostics. Don't, you don't have to worry about the history here. But um, the first heretics um, thought that flesh was bad and that God couldn't have taken on flesh. And that, you can understand this. In other words, that's precisely the kind of the paradox of the incarnation is that God wanted to take on our nature with all its weakness. And so it would make sense that the first heretics would deny that he really took on human nature. And so they would say that he took on like the appearance of human nature, some kind of phantom or ghost or, or something. But Horror. yeah, didn't, didn't really. And it was precisely to avoid the scandal of God dying on the cross. Um, so yeah, they got to, so that was the first heresy to be um, condemned. Um, and um, St. Irenaeus is one of the... Yeah, so he's, I mean, there, there were several, but he was one of the, yeah, he's not a heretic. He's, a, he's not a Gnostic, he's the anti-Gnostic. And he wrote the first great work of Christian theology called Against the Heresies. And it was against the, the Gnostic heresies. Lived in the second century. Um, but um, then another heresy would be denying that he's truly God. And this would be, above all, the Arian heresy. And maybe we'll talk a little more about that. Not the Nazis. It's spelled differently. <laughs> Arian. Oh. Yeah, thank you a couple weeks ago for mentioning that. Uh, because you know my, my background. I had never heard of uh, Arian Christianity. Yeah, so I Jehovah's Witness. Research on it. And yeah, it, it's the... It's the same thing. It's the same thing, yeah. yeah. So th this heresy got defeated in the 4th century, and the um, Saint Athanasius would be the most important defender of the Catholic faith against the Arian. So Arius, it, it comes from a man's name, Arius, who lived in the, um, about the year 320. And he, um, he says, yes, Jesus is God, but let's use a small g to distinguish him from God the Father. And his reasoning was, um, if, God, if, if Jesus is the Son of God, the Son's got to be less than the Father. And therefore, the Son has to have an origin. The Father alone would be eternal, but not the Son. This is really a heresy that um, belongs in the Trinity class from two weeks ago. Because it's a heresy not so much about the Incarnation, but about the eternal trinity. And it's basically saying that in the trinity, there's a higher and a lower, and that the Father is the only one who's properly God. All right. So this, too, got condemned, and it got condemned in the Council of Nicaea. And that's where we get the Nicene Creed that we say in church on Sundays in the Mass. Right? It was a creed that was written out um, adapted from um, a creed that would be said at baptism, but um, strengthened um, against this so that it says, God from God, true, light from light, uh, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not uh, made, um, consubstantial with the Father. So all of that was put into the creed against this heresy to make it clear that um, who is Jesus? He's God, the same as his father, right? not less in any way. God from God, and he's consubstantial. Again, that blows more in Trinity class. Of the same nature as the father, 
not any less God than God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. All right? But the third way you can go wrong is say, oh yeah, I believe in that Jesus is in his divinity, um, God the same as God the Father, consubstantial with the Father, and I believe that he's truly man, um, but there are two, two sons of God. There's the divine son of God, and there's the man, Jesus. And that separates Jesus the man from the eternal son of God as if they were two persons or two subjects. And this is another ancient heresy um, founded by someone named Nestorius, who was um, the uh, patriarch of Constantinople at the time. Anyway, and so there was another council, the Council of Ephesus, that um, condemned that. And um, the key is, there's just one Jesus, son of the Father from all eternity, who then took on flesh in the middle of human history. And he's one subject in two natures. Right? One person in two natures. So part of the, this was the most difficult. And I think you're good. I can see why <laughs> that we're having trouble. So we're, yeah, this requires a teeny bit of philosophy. Let me uh, indulge me for a minute. What's the difference between nature and person? That's what this heresy was mixing up. Nature, so we all, all of us share in human nature, right? I've got human nature, you've got human nature, and we've got human nature equally. Um, it's something shareable. But my personhood is not shared with you, nor yours with me. Person answers the question, who is it? Nature answers the question, what is it? All right, so if we're to ask Jesus, what are you? All right, if, if, he were to, if we were to have him here, um, the right answer, the Christian faith answers, God and man. Right? He's got two what's, and that's what's um, strange about this. None of us can answer in that way. We just answer one way, right? What am I, a human being? Who am I? Larry. Right? That's my, and everybody answered differently there, right? And so in Jesus, he's got one personhood proper to him, and that is to be the son of God. But he's got two ways of existing, God and man. One from all eternity, and another that he took on in the middle of human history when he was conceived in his mother's womb. And yes, this is difficult because he's the only one who has two natures. I can't point to anybody else. Right? And so we have to believe something about Jesus that's unique, that he's God from all eternity, and that it, uh, like the Father and the Holy Spirit, the same, but that 2,000 years ago, he began to exist also as man and is completely like us in his humanity and is completely like his father in divinity. And yet he's not two, but one. Questions on that? So if we were, uh, yeah, yeah. So what Noxus were saying was that 
Jesus wasn't fully man. Right. And they also had a problem with him being not fully God either. But, okay. but what first kind of came out was the, their denial of his being man. So is that, something, is that like kind of related to like the idea that like if he was fully man, then that means he was like capable of sinning even if he didn't? Is that like, that We're going to look at that. Hold on to that thought. So we, what we'd want to say for that is God can't sin. And so, so we're going to say Jesus couldn't sin. But he took on human nature that is free, and he was truly free, and he freely chose to die for us. All right? That's what we want to hold there. All right? In other words, he took on human freedom. That was among the things that he took on in becoming man. But one of the things he didn't take on in becoming man was sin. And so therefore, we say, this is from the letter of Hebrews, he became like us in all things but sin. In other words, he became like us in being human, being weak, and needing to sleep, and having you know, um, family, and uh, playing, and snoring. I don't know about the snoring. But, um, um, but not sin. Um, but free. He had to be free as we are free. Right? Because he's teaching us how to use our freedom by his example. I'm right? sorry, he wouldn't be an example if he weren't free and tempted. Again, as in that reading that you read us from Hebrews chapter 4. Tempted as we are. Okay? Great. Yeah, so here's the line. Like us in all things but sin, Hebrews 4.15. All right, so perfect in humanity, perfect in divinity, and one Jesus, not two different Jesus. So if, we were, if I were to ask you, um, who's born of Mary? What would be the right answer? So you could say Jesus, but would, would it be right to say God was born of Mary? Yes. Yes. Right? Because he's one person. And so that the one who's born of Mary is both God and man. And so we can say, yes, she gave birth to a human being. And yes, she gave birth to God. The word incarnate. The word incarnate. Right? So the right answer there is yes. And that's what, God, um, that's what Nestorius denied. He said that because that's how he separated. He said, yeah, what Mary gave birth to was a human being, the holy, a holy human being, but not God. And that that's not right. Mary gave birth to God made man. All right? And then if we were to ask, who died on the cross? All right, Jesus died on the cross. But would it be true to say God died on the cross? The Son of God died on the cross? Yes. Okay? That's, again, what Nestorius denied. He would say the man Jesus died on the cross, but not the divine Son. And we can't distinguish like that, right? He's one and the same person in two natures. All right, does that make sense to everyone? And similarly for all the mysteries of his life, right? Who was born in Bethlehem? God made man. Who um, I don't know, um, was baptized in the River Jordan? God made man, etc. All right, so yes, two natures, one person. In other words, one who, but two different modes of existing. If you want an analogy, all right, so this is maybe I... Shouldn't try this. But each of us has a certain analogy. We're composed of two parts, body and soul. 
and they're pretty different. Our bodies are corruptible, right, and they will turn into dust. Our souls are spiritual and immortal. Um, and yet we make one being, one person. And so that's the analogy that the fathers of the church use. Um, so like us, composed of two parts, so Jesus composed of divinity and humanity. But the difference is that our two parts make one nature, not two natures. And in Jesus, his two parts um, are two natures that are infinitely distinct, God and man. All right, Jesus, uh, let me say something about, did Jesus have a soul? Technical question, what do you think? Did Jesus have a soul? No. Why not? Because, well, no, he, he would have had to have one if he was a son of man. Yeah, yeah, so the answer is yes. Jesus had a soul and because he's man, and that's part of being a man, is that we've got body and soul. So Jesus to be true man, has to have what we have, body and soul. And in fact, his body came from his mother Mary, and his soul was, would have been created by the Trinity out of nothing at the moment of his conception, at the, at the Annunciation when Mary said yes. All right, so Jesus had a soul, a human soul. What about, did Jesus have a, maybe I shouldn't put this up here. Let me ask you instead of showing you the answer. It's too late now. You've already seen it. And I can't get rid of it. Okay, we'll leave it up there. So did, um, but pretend you didn't look at that. Did Jesus have a human mind? It follows just what we said. Yes, right? He's got to have a human mind. We said he's got a human freedom. He's got a human mind. He's also got the divine intellect, right? He, in fact, he is the divine intellect. So this is strange. Jesus has a human intellect and the divine intellect at the same time. And does Jesus have a human will? We said yes, right? He wouldn't be man. Does he have divine will? Yes. Jesus has two intellects and two wills because he's got two natures, divine and human. Are they in conflict with each other? No, no. But are they different? Infinitely. It's mysterious. So we have to keep a reverence here, right? We can't, I, I teach this class at the seminary, Christology, and, and. So would his divine nature still be present in heaven as he was down here in his human nature? Sure, yeah, and it's not even in, limited to a place. Divine nature is everywhere because the divine nature holds us in being. And so wherever there's a world or being or creation, God is there. Right? And so, yes, his um, divinity was everywhere while his body was in Mary's womb. Right? And that's part of the mystery, is that he didn't cease being God. Great question. He didn't cease being God when he was a zygote or a fetus. Um, and he was ruling the universe when he was nailed to the cross. Okay? He didn't stop being God when he was crucified. Right? And you can't. You, you can't stop being God because God is unchangeable. And he didn't be, he's changed. So here's, again, part of the mystery. As man, he's totally changeable, right? That's human nature is to grow and change. As God, he's unchangeable. And it's not a contradiction because they're two natures. Is he unchangeable and changeable? Yes, but not in the same way at the same time. Unchangeable as God, changeable as man. Immortal as God, mortal as man. 
infinitely powerful as God, weak as man. Yeah. No, he's a, so. Yeah, he's got a human soul, like our soul. No, because that um, soul is what animates a body, and so in his divinity, there's no soul because there's no body to to animate. Um, so we say animals have animal souls, human beings have spiritual souls, but angels don't have souls, and God doesn't have a soul except. In Jesus' humanity. Okay? And we've run out of time. And we'll pick up here. So next time, we, we can do a few more questions on this. What did Jesus know? And, um, and then we'll look at Mary and the Annunciation and her role in um, God becoming man. Okay? Bring questions. And I can stay a little bit after class if anybody has questions. I know we just covered a, um, you, the most important mystery of the faith. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, Almighty God, for having become man in the middle of human history and for us, out of love for us. We thank you through Christ our Lord, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you.